0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're joined by Mary Burke, a professor of English at the University of Connecticut, where she directs the Irish Literature Concentration and publishes on Irish and Irish-American culture, minorities and identities. Professor Burke's new book, Race, Politics and Irish America, a Gothic History, will be published in the US by Oxford University Press in March 2023, but is available for pre-order for just $24 right now. This book examines various Irish immigrant cohorts through the words and lives of black and white writers and public figures. This follows on from Professor Burke's first book with Oxford University Press, which was a cultural history of the Irish traveler minority and her work in 2022 Uh, republishing with Tramp Press an edition of The Horse of Selene, a lost classic by the Traveler Romani novelist Juanita Casey. Professor Burke has had cover images and or lead articles in a number of journals in recent years, including the James Joyce Quarterly, and her public facing and creative work has been placed with NPR, the Irish Times, RTE, and Faber. She has served on Fulbright Screening Committee for Ireland and is a former Notre Dame Irish Studies NEH Fellow, a graduate of Trinity College Dublin, Queen's University Belfast. She was an LRH Fellow at TCD in 2022 and will deliver the Fund for Irish Studies Public Lecture at Princeton this coming March 2023. Professor Burke, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Aidan, thank you very, very much uh, for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here today.
1: So before we really get into the kind of nitty gritty of your book, could you give us just a general overview of what this book, Race, Politics in Irish America, is all about?
0: Uh, Sure. So it's a, I suppose, broadly, it's a cultural history of race and centuries of Irishness in the Americas. Um, It surveys the forcibly transported 17th century Irish, the 18th century Presbyterian Ulster Scots, and the post-1845 famine immigrants. Uh, I suppose in particular, it examines portrayals of these Irish cohorts as both colluders and victims within America's structure of race. And I argue that the Irish were racialized and then Vikings, not once, as is often said, but multiple times. Um, Irish encounters with Native and African Americans in the Americas across centuries are central. However, the Irish themselves were racially transformed in the Americas. And I think that's really indicated by the designations They acquired uh, in the slaveholding Caribbean, on America's frontiers, and antebellum plantation and along its eastern seaboard. And those designations are Redlegs, Scots Irish and Black Irish.
1: So I'll come back maybe later on in a few minutes to those those three different designations that you use in your book. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about which actual cultural figures you you study? Because you obviously cover quite a, a broad array of people in this book.
0: Yeah, so I, I try to cover a really diverse range of figures and, and of, of, of cultural productions too, not, not just fiction. Um, so the book encompasses figures from the Ulster-Irish Andrew Jackson, President Jackson, uh, to the family of the Caribbean Irish Rihanna, um, along with dozens of writers, performers, and public men and women. Um, so this Irish pursuit of you know an unconditional whiteness uh, that, I, that I write about, it's both critiqued and sometimes condoned. In you know, fiction, drama, film, TV, guerrilla art, journalism, caricature, historiography, viral pseudo history, um, exhibition, statuary and even gravestone inscription. And I, because of the range, um, I, I was actually allowed um, by Oxford University Press to to use uh, to have 33 color illustrations, which I'm delighted by.
1: So, so you're obviously using a fairly broad definition of Irish America. I mean, broad enough to include Andrew Jackson and Rihanna. They're they're sort of not usually bracketed together like that. What what is your working definition of Irish America in this book?
0: Uh, well, I suppose first of all, the Irish, the term Irish America is often, I think, unthinkingly used it's solely to refer to the post-1845 famine immigrant cohort alone. Um, who were, you know, predominantly Catholic and Irish Western Seaboard uh, in origin, but that I think it faces centuries of previ- previous Irish presence in the Americas. Um, plural. I always stress the plural. So as I've noted, the the Irish were racialized and subsequently whitened multiple times, and that began in the 17th century slave plantation Americas. Um, so it's important that I stress that the coinages um, for those of white Irish stock in the Americas, red legs, Scots Irish, and Black Irish, that these have no Traditional corollary in Ireland. In other words, these terms emerge from America's structures of race and, and ethnic hierarchy.
1: So, maybe if we, we kind of drill down into those, those different designations that you're using, can you explain, first of all, who were the red legs? How, how did they become known by that term?
0: Yeah, so I, I'll start with the red legs and, uh, and then I'll, I'll sort of move on to the Scots Irish. So, so red legs is the term applied to the Irish uh, transported to the Caribbean and this was due to their tendency to sunburn and to and this is also this term is actually still used of their contemporary descendants in the caribbean um white irish paleness became a racial liability in that context until uh, strict differentiation between white transportee and enslaved african was, was codified uh, and so ne- now I'll just move on to the Scots-Irish. i try and keep mm-hmm. it brief as well. So the mm-hmm. Presbyterian Ulster-Irish in America also acquired an ethno-racial label uh, when they became known as the Scots-Irish. Um, they were predominantly Presbyterians of Scottish descent who had settled uh, land in Ulster, but subsequently departed for colonial America in, in large numbers from the 18th century on. So the Ulster-Irish obtained only conditional whiteness. In, in Benjamin Franklin's colony and on certain frontiers. And this was due, as Patrick Griffin argued, to their role as a buffer population um, situated somewhere between Native Americans and Europeans.
1: And then maybe keeping with this um, problem of race that really runs through all of this, um, who exactly are this ter- this group of people that you call the Black Irish?
0: Oh, so the Black Irish... Um, so I, I, I look at... The convoluted histories of this slippery term, as used in the past, in reference both to the marginalised white Irish in America and to Caribbean blacks of Irish descent or connection.
1: And then, I mean, you, you look at people like Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and, and Frank Yerby. How do they fit into this very broad term, then, it's almost like fluid term?
0: So, so that's a good question. So mixed race figures like the historian and memoirist Dunbar Artee's, she is, uh, Indigenous American and Scots Irish. And also, somebody very central to my work is a best-selling mid-century author Frank Yerby, who is African American with some maternal and um, Scots Irish ancestry. These, these are, these people are both aware of the contentious history of the Irish with Americans of color. And they deal with that complicated, and, and for them, of course, that personal legacy um, in their writing.
1: And you you, you make the argument that, that Yerby, be, um, despite being of maternal Scots-Irish ancestry, remains invisible um, within the Irish-American canon on, on multiple levels. Why would that be the case? Why has he not been kind of reclaimed? Yeah.
0: So, yeah, so it's a category called Irish-American literature. It's customarily excluded even uh, canonical white writers of Ulster Presbyterian origins, such as, you know, people I deal with, like Edgar Allan Poe, Ellen Glasgow, and Henry James. Um, So Yerby's identification with his Irish heritage in his life and writings cannot uh, be encompassed by conservative definitions of Irishness that insist upon... You know, dermal whiteness, uh, uh, on top of, of course, the kind of sectarian narrowness of definition that excludes, you know, Poe and James and and Glasgow. Um, I should add one further um, use of the term Black Irish that I needed to examine. And the one that always comes up in questions, funnily enough, is its deployment by contemporary white Irish Americans who are generally quite privileged in many cases. And it's used to describe, you know, white Irish coloring simply. It's very apolitical. And I think that that used arguably effaces Black people of Irish connection in the Caribbean and North America. And it even effaces how that, that term was used of the marginalized 19th century white Irish um, in in North America. And I should actually backtrack just for a moment, because I didn't kind of explain um, that contention between the post Salmon Irish and and the Scots Irish, because uh, the more white Anglo-Saxon coinage Scots Irish, it gradually gained currency among that cohort as they assimilated into Anglo-America. And it was the influence of the poor and predominantly Catholic Irish immigrants during and after the famine that strengthened sort of the gulf between the two Irishnesses, the one that was whitened and the newer Irish that aspired to, to whiteness. So I think as well as encounters with Native and African-Americans, I also consider competition within America's immigrant hierarchy between the Ulster Irish and the post famine Irish um, since the inter-ethnic conflict of the motherland went with the Irish across the Atlantic. And to get back to what i just said, it also, of course, inflects the canon of, you know, um, 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 Irish-American literature, which seems very, very sectarian in some way.
1: Sure, sure. So maybe uh, I, I might have one more kind of definitional question before sure. we proceed any further. The, the, drawing on the subtitle of your book, what exactly is this Gothic history that you're studying? Uh,
0: so Irish-American literary critics, um, and I suppose, um, um, yeah, the Irish critics who, who look at it as well, they've tended to only consider the social realist, Literature produced by the post famine Catholic Irish. So, this is a very narrow, very partial picture. Uh, so, there is a much to discover, I think, about Irish America by reading for the coded presence of, you know, kind of unprocessed Irish trauma and history and racial anxiety, by reading that, particularly in non realist fiction um, by Irish Americans of all stripes. And I, so, particularly Gothic is, is very interesting in that regard, since Gothic is a genre about a troubled past that refuses to stay there. So it's kind of a perfect conduit, I think, for thinking about um, unfinished Irish history.
1: And then you, you identify a subgenre that you call Su- Scots-Irish gothic. Can you tell us what that is?
0: Yeah. So uh, I, my, the book suggests that works by Charles Braxton Brown, um, who, who you know wrote the first gothic novel in the American tradition, um, by Brown, by Edgar Allan Poe, by Henry James, and by even by William Faulkner, that these express the unease of the ultra-settler in America as neither fully Anglo-Irish Gothic, nor fully American Gothic, but I think these works are a subgenre that I termed Scots-Irish um, Gothic. So Poe and James were of Ulster settler colonial origin. And their ghost stories depict the violence of the old world being ceaselessly reprised in the new. And I think that, they, you know, ultimately they're questioning the legitimacy of Ulster Protestant presence in colonial Ireland, And on the colonial American frontier, or at least an anxiety around that that history, I think in particular, what I found fascinating was that the Scots Irish Andrew Jackson, who, you know, emerges as a kind of a scourge of Native Americans in many accounts, he, he emerges as an undead presence who repeatedly returns. In, of course, uh, you know, American political culture down to the Trump administration, but also in Irish-American fiction, because both Fitzgerald and James have Jackson hover as a kind of spectral malevolent presence um, in in some of their fiction. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, this seems to be a a theme that runs through a lot of the the literature that you're looking at, that that I think at one point you suggested history itself is Gothic in Irish-American narratives of various genres because of these things that return.
0: Can you tell us more about that? Uh, yeah. So so in their dealings with Native and African-Americans, the Irish often replicated the very uh, colonial settler mindset that had caused their flight from Ireland to begin with. And, and that's depicted in a lot of the fiction. Um, so I consider the baggage of sectarianism and, and, and settler co- colonial violence that was brought by the Irish from the disordered motherland in works you know, by or about their descendants. And so these texts, they often simultaneously conjure up the unfinished history of both Ireland and America. And one of the most interesting um, uh, examples of this to me was the Irish-American dramatist Eugene O'Neill, who is very well read in Irish history and, and a play of O'Neill such as Desire Under the uh, I think it simultaneously addresses the seizure of native lands in America by the earliest Irish cohort and the plantation um, of Ireland. However, you know, only the first has been recognized by critics, uh, because I think U.S. American scholars often ignore Irish history in relation to canonical authors of Irish connection, even if the authors themselves do not ignore Irish history. Mm -hmm.
1: Can you tell us more then about the the Gothic vocabulary that you're using in the book?
0: So, yeah, I I, I use the Gothic vocabulary, I think, beyond the the genre itself to describe um, Irish sectarianism, particularly in relation to the patronymic tradition, so the, the sort of the, the the male sort of naming uh, down the patrilineal line, that tradition. So the settlement of, of Ireland by many with with British surnames uh, made it a culture that was exquisitely attuned, painfully attuned to the associations of, of surnames. So surnames that come down the male line are at the root of a kind of an intergenerational haunting in a number of of Irish-American Gothic texts. So Poe and James both have stories about the return of the dead male ancestor who shares an exact name with his descendants. And I think more broadly, again, the Irish male who carries the patrilineal name is inscribed you know, by his forebears who demand allegiance to the heritage, to the politics with which the family name is associated. And I use the case of the pro-slavery Irish nationalist John Mitchell, who who fled to America, of course, and him and his uh, New York Mayor Grant, who had the exact same name. He too was was John Mitchell. And I use their case to argue that the Irish male body is itself a kind of an ancestor haunted text. Uh, Mayor John Mitchell was at odds at multiple levels. With the allegiances and politics of his pro-slavery grandfather, the same name, but his famous ancestor's outsized reputation among New York Irish nationalists and bedeviled uh, the mayor's public life in, in the World War One era.
1: So, I mean, Mitchell has this incredibly canonical reputation within Irish nationalism itself. John Mitchell, the, the original John Mitchell, and, and then obviously you're looking at. And people like Poe and, and uh, Eugene O'Neill, these incredibly canonical figures, but white, white male canonical figures. Um, and and your book also though goes beyond this to, to point out that that this Irish American narrative has has often been dominated by white males, white Catholic males um, of of the kind like O'Neill. Um, so how does adding in let's say female or queer or black as well as Scots Irish writers, performers, and public figures change what we think we know about Irish America.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, so I do argue that Jackson, the Jackson and Kennedy eras and, and, and administrations that these consolidated Ulster Irish and, and post and Irish whiteness respectively. But I also try to correct for, you know, a, a traditional overemphasis, I think, on the roles played by such public men in accounts of, you know, Irish whitening. Uh, surveys of Irish American history have sometimes divvied up attention between Scots Irish and post and Irish, but surveys of Irish American fiction have generally ignored Scots Irish writers. I think, nevertheless, you know, both historiography and literary criticism generally kind of have agreed in the past that only straight white male Irish American lives and authors deserve attention um, in the main. So, you know, try and broaden that. I include writers such as, of course, James, but also George Kelly, was Grace Kelly's uncle, and a dramatist, or Eudora Welty, Ella Glasgow, and of course, Yerby. And I'm trying to correct for literary critics' traditional focus on the straight male, Catholic, Irish-American author as the only voice that represents the Irish experience in the Americas. So the book uh, includes writers, performers and public figures of Irish connection who are black and female and queer and uh, in an attempt to kind of expand this standard Irish, Irish assimilation narrative. Um, And it's centering of powerful and and very, you know, and straight white Catholic Irishmen alone. So, you know, I include people like Frederick Douglass, Oscar Wilde, Margaret Mitchell, uh, Faulkner, Josephine Baker, Grace Kelly, John Wayne, Paul Robeson, Maureen O'Hara, Jackie Kennedy, and even Mariah Carey makes a quick appearance.
1: So maybe just to kind of continue then with with talking about about these um, canonical writers. Tell us a bit about how Eugene O'Neill and F. Scott Fitzgerald compare and contrast in terms of how they depict Irishness and race.
0: Yeah, so so one of the my chapters doesn't he consider you know near contemporaries O'Neill and Fitzgerald they shared similar backgrounds you know both were raised in comfortable uh, Catholic Irish American homes both were quite mindful of their immigrant roots so in quite different ways so Fitzgerald over identified with the only non Irish branch of his family. Um, because it exemplified Saxon whiteness to him. He was quite anxious about such things. So, so that emphasis has been unquestioned uh, by critics. Um, and, and it's been, you know, they've left unexamined what I discovered to have been uh, Fitzgerald's 18th century Irish-American wreath. Um, so this effaced Irishness on his father's side. I think he's a great source of the unease uh, regarding class and racial status that fuels um, much of Fitzgerald's fiction. So by contrast, O'Neill's drama critiques the Irish presence in the Americas over centuries as one long failure to create solidarity with our fellow oppressed, especially um, peoples of colour. Um, so as a result, you know, in O'Neill's drama, unfinished Irish histories haunt the ostensibly American action, you know, and those histories are range from the plantation and the famine, even to partition. You know. Um so his work also placed um black protagonists, black actors on the Broadway stage in a period when white dramatists did not do this. Indeed, uh, O'Neill actually depicted an interracial marriage between an Irish American woman uh and an African American man, and that was performed by Paul Robeson actually. And and that um that that threw drew, drew threats uh to O'Neill's family uh from the KKK. So he did take risks.
1: So there are these um, differences in terms of how they're kind of engaging with their their Irish background, Um, but you do suggest at the same time that for all those differences, there is a point of convergence in both of their works where uh, they're engaging what you call a defective Irish whiteness, or or they're displaying that, um, uh, which you define in both kind of dermal, like in in skin terms, but also in social terms. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Yeah, so um, by that I mean, uh, so in the Fitzpatrick scale, and Fitzpatrick Skill is a classification of skin tone that was created by an Irish American uh, dermatologist of that name. Um, so, in that classification, the white Irish had skin tones so light as to be flawed uh, due to being too pale. So, um, as I've already noted, a tendency to sunburn, to burn, was a racial liability. Uh, for a while in the 17th century on Caribbean islands that with, witnessed indentured white labour and in which the easily sunburned Irish were, were racialized as red or red lag so this early moment of Irish African contact is actually evoked in O'Neill's early sea plays which are set in the Caribbean and which stage very charged encounters between white Irish sailors and, and black locals um, so where, where Fitzgerald comes into this is that a tendency to burn was also a social liability on fashionable 1920s Riviera beaches in which having an even tan conversely signals whiteness. So these are, there are kind of extraordinarily um, extraordinary racial implications, I think, to the fact that the trend for suntanning among elite whites was popularized in the Anglophone world by no less than Fitzgerald. And his Riviera circle, yet Fitzgerald also denigrated himself as half Black Irish. Um, so I was trying to hold those two things together: somebody who makes sun tanning fashionable and somebody who denigrates himself as, as half Black Irish. So you know, um, it's it's complicated. Um, and so uh, I, I do end up uh, titling the chapter "How How the Irish Became Red" in an attempt <laughs> to sort of grapple with that. <laughs>
1: So maybe moving on to to one of the other chapters of your book, chapter four um, looks at at plantation novels by Irish Americans. And, And I sort of was struck by that because the word plantation pops up on both sides of the Atlantic, but can mean very different things. So can you tell us more about these Irish American plantation novels? What kind of shared characteristics do they have?
0: Yes. Uh, so, so the chapter focuses on three novels that I that depict planters of broadly um, Irish connection in the antebellum and in the post Civil War South. So they are Margaret Mitchell's um, Gone with the Wind, and, and that's Gerald O'Hara is the planter in that. William Faulkner is Absalom, Absalom, and a man called Sutton is the Irish planter there. And both of those novels are 36. And the third is Frankie Yerby's Foxes of Harrow. Uh, from 1946. And Stephen Fox is the Irish planter there. And in relation to that, um, as you say, that interesting uh, repetition, here we go again with the Gothic history and the repetition, um, I do um, The chapter does does sort of encompass a a comparison of the Irish big house Gothic with the Southern Plantation novel too and that encompasses Eudora Welty and and Elizabeth Bowen. But I'm going to concentrate at the moment on the three Irish planter novels by by Yerby Mitchell and Faulkner. So in them the action is actually fueled by this drive, this Irish drive for whiteness and its achievement through the subjugation of Black and Native bodies. Of course the the works differ hugely in register uh, Faulkner writes complicated Gothic modernism that both mourns and condemns the Old South. And on the other hand, the more accessible historical romances of Yerby and Mitchell portray slavery in very uh, op- opposed ways. Nevertheless, I think all three of these Irish planter novels they center on penniless and initially off-white protagonists who are a pre-Saman Irish um, association and who transform themselves into the white exploitative landowner class you know, to whom they themselves had once all been subject, and and also the all three authors were of southern birth in a period, of course, in which that region remained racially segregated, and all claimed Irish or, in, in Faulkner's case, um, Scottish Gaelic connection.
1: Yeah, and I noticed that in that context, you use this other term, then Galo American, rather than Irish American.
0: Yeah, I actually had to coin it. I had to coin a term, uh, and I coined Galo American to account for. A Highland Scottish and Irish affiliation that I found in both Faulkner and, and Fitzgerald. Um, um, just as the Kettle term Irish subsumes sometimes mutually antagonistic Irish identities, you know, the term Scottish doesn't always account for the political significance and irish links of scottish highland ancestry as as depicted um in in some of this fiction so such i think are central uh, uh to my reading of, of faulkner's planter Sutton, who is of abject and really multiple poor white british and and irish ancestries um um in the in absalom absalom
1: mhm uh, and obviously faulkner's a, you know an, an absalom absalom is a a quite well known book could you tell us a little bit more about yerby's novel which is I assume far less well known.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's not as well known now, but even though his he's, he's, you know his star is on the rise again, um, there's many critics writing about him. But you know that wasn't always the case. He's, so his 1946 novel, The Foxes of Harrow, was a breakout bestseller, and it actually kickstarted a really prolific career that made him America's highest earning novelist for a while. Uh, so The Foxes of Harrow covers a forty year period, 1825 to 65. Which is the height from the height to the nadir of white Southern fortune. It's a historical romance and it chronicles again one Stephen Fox, who's a poor Dublin immigrant who rises in Louisiana society by acquiring the slave plantation called Harrow. So Fox's was adapted to the big screen acting 1947 in a production starring Maureen O'Hara that I also examined at the film excised the novel's very central um, and black characters. Uh, so Yerby's negotiation of his dual African-American and Irish heritage is, is apparent, I think, um, in Foxes of Harrow. Uh, Stephen Fox's so-called guttersnipe Dublin origins, they challenge the certainties of the South black-white binary uh, very, very much in the novel, just as its many mixed race and racially ambiguous French characters um, do as well.
1: Maybe if you can talk a little bit more about this question of the writers of Irish heritage or of part Irish heritage, uh, Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, was of Irish heritage too, right?
0: Yeah, uh, they they have so much in common. They were both born into uh, Yerby and Mitchell were both born into part Irish Atlanta families, which is extraordinary. They were both you know raised in Georgia during segregation by mothers of Irish descent. Of however, of course, crucially, their socially assigned racial identities. Created divergent approaches to representing, you know, the antebellum felt in their respective uh, romance novels. So, Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell's novel, is set on the Georgia cotton plantation of Irishman Gerald O'Hara, and it was, and indeed, it remains. Very controversial for opening with a vision of an antebellum, southern, you know, white fairy tale, as the boys called it, and uh, controversially, these very happily enslaved African-Americans in Mitchell's novel. So Yerby writes accessible fiction in the Mitchell mode, but he deviates hugely from her novel in depicting rebellious, articulate and very prominent African-American characters, and they gradually take over the narrative. As the post Civil War period, um, you know, emerges um, in the action.
1: So, is Yerby's own background then why there's so much more interracial interraciality, if you want to call it that, um, in his work than in Mitchell's?
0: Uh, Well, yeah, yes, though there is interraciality in Faulkner too. Um, So Sutpen, uh, Faulkner's planter in Absalom, he is of transportee descent on one side, one of his many ancestries. Uh, So I call him a red leg planter. But both, yes, both Faulkner and and Yerby mock the ambitions of their Irish planters to secure, you know, legitimate male lines in perpetuity. Um, And they do this by making their heirs illegitimate mixed race young men. By contrast, then, you know, there's a very sealed white supremacist universe. In Margaret Mitchell's vision in Gone with the Wind*, in which, you know, black, whites or Irish African interraciality is kind of impossible in, in that world. So,
1: I mean, Mitchell's, a, 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 for want of a better word, like a, a romance novelist and, and Yerby, as you say, is kind of writing in the same mode. So where, where's the Gothic then within these romance, historical romances?
0: Um, So, yeah, I guess there is a Gothic return of of Irish history in in Yerby and Mitch, and rather than, you know, a Gothic genre, even though um, 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 Yarbys prologue is actually quite Gothic. But I I won't talk about that. I'm going to think about sort of the return of maybe Irish history in some ways. So Ireland's uh, 1798 uprising is not explicitly mentioned um, in Yarbys novel, but Fox's age in the action places his birth at about the time of that rebellion. And also in naming his plantation Harrow, Fox seemingly kind of unironically memorializes the opening class of 1798, which was the Battle of the Harrow. So Yerby Fox had fled, disordered colonial Ireland for America, in order to gain what he called, quote, freedom for himself and his sons. And that, of course, is freedom from the kinds of conditions that led to the rebellion in 1798. But, of course, Fox achieved freedom for himself and his sons by denying it to others. Uh, similarly, in, in Margaret Mitchell's um, um, novel, Gerald O'Hara justifies what he calls it, quote, his ruthless, what is called rather, his, his ruthless singleness of purpose um, in acquiring plantation and human chattel as, quote, the hunger of an Irishman who had been a tenant on the lands of people once had owned. So, Yerby has Fox begin to regret his choices as he ages, but such introspection never occurs, you know, with Gerald O'Hara in in Mitchell's novel, or indeed with his daughter.
1: Yeah, as you say, like Mitchell's, um, in her work, she, she has her Catholic Irish planter character kind of unthinkingly replicate Ireland's settler colonial conditions when when transplanted to the south, uh, to the American south. Um, how much does this draw on her own? Um, background or how much was she drawing on her own background when she wrote?
0: Yeah, so so she spent, uh, she had a Tipperary Catholic uh, background, uh, ancestry, uh, and she spent much time at her family's uh, plantation house in her early decades. So these Fitzgerald's Tipperary Catholic ancestors, they had built that uh, that house, that slave plantation as it was then, on Georgia land. Uh, that Georgia land had been clear of native presence by no less a person than General Andrew Jackson. And of course, in turn, Jackson went on to secure Scots-Irish whiteness by becoming the first of many presidents of that ancestry in the US. So altogether, I think my reading of both Mitchell's life and family history side by side suggests the culpability of the Irish of all stripes um, in their dealings with peoples of color.
1: So I I might jump forward then quite a bit in time at least from the settings of these novels, if not from when they were written themselves, um, both the the final chapter and then the, the epilogue, uh, see you weave together people that are seemingly connected like Grace Kelly and the Kennedys, um, but then ending up with the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement um, in a single narrative uh, of what you call a fairy tale that turns to Gothic horror. So tell us how you get from Grace Kelly to Black Lives Matter.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess it's this movement from the genre of the fairy tale, the fairy tale of aspirational Irish America, at least, which is unconditional whiteness, fully achieved. Um, You know, the movement from that to the Gothic horror of the sour dream, you know, um, with the assassination of of John Kennedy and and Robert Kennedy. Um, So the brothers were negotiating civil rights just as their own ethnic cohort attained unconditional whiteness. And I argue that Robert Kennedy, in particular, maybe was the great what might have been of Black and, and Irish relations in America.
1: So, so was it a conscious choice then not to to begin with what appears to be a a very conventional fairy tale in relation to Grace Kennedy, or Grace Kelly, and and John F. Kennedy?
0: Um, so I'm going to begin, yeah. So so. I should I sort of explain where Grace Kelly comes into this 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 sort of movement from from fairy tale, I guess, to Gothic car. So Kennedy was the first president of Catholic family and Irish descent. Um, um, you know, he was elected in 1961. And the early 1960s, Kennedy era tends to be the beginning point in many assessments of the, the you know, the final arrival of the Irish in America to, to unconditional whiteness. Um so I, I think it's not a, a coincidence that in the Northeast, the term Scots Irish receives. Um, as a self-description from about this point on, since the stigma associated with being famine Irish and recedes at that point. So that all ethnic conflict sort of recedes somewhat, at least in the Northeast at that point. So however, so I want to backtrack from there, though, because I think that some five years before Kennedy's election, tens of millions of people worldwide watched the ascension of actress Grace Kelly. To European royalty in Monaco's Catholic Cathedral. And that was in, in 1956. So Kelly, like Kennedy too, was of famine Irish descent. And I argue that this global media event, so one of her wedding, that this altered the course of her ethnic cohort. But I think, you know, just to go back to something I said earlier, which is that the, the sort of the manner in which Kelly's significance to Irish America has never been given scholarly attention. I think that tells us a lot. About the master narrative of, of Irish America, so it was Grace's globally broadcast ascent to, you know, fairy tale whiteness. Really, I call it a white wedding in multiple registers. So this this fairy tale ascent it paved the way for America's royals, as the Kennedy dynasty was named, I think not coincidentally, and um, you know, as well of course, as broader Irish America's assimilation. However, you know, sticking with genre, centuries of Gothic literature holds that, you know. Where there is a fair princess in a castle, there is soon to be horror.
1: So I, I might actually ask you to, to dwell a bit more on that horror, if that's OK. You call mm-hmm. it a, a Kennedy Gothic. Um, so what exactly is this Kennedy Gothic horror that you're describing?
0: Right. So, so Gothic literature, you know, since its inception really in the 18th century, particularly has expressed the complicity. Uh, of obtaining of power and maintaining power. So I look at the Gothic cultural afterlife of the new and uncontestably white Catholic Irish power elite in the 1960s and beyond. So Gothic, you know, it incorporates new aristocracies as they arise. So I term that iteration I identify, which includes the Jackie Kennedy associated documentary, Grey Gardens. I call this Kennedy Gothic. Uh, and what I mean by that is that cultural, And particularly journalistic uh, portrayals of the Kennedys encompass two distinct interpretations that generally break down along party lines. But in both iterations, the dynasty is in mess with the terror and the violence with which Gothic has always been concerned from its beginnings. So th- there's kind of two iterations. So liberals and Democrats held that the Kennedy family members were themselves the innocent victims of sinister conspiracies and, you know, a family curse, famously. While for conservatives, and I'm including their Irish-American voters abandoning hereditary Democratic um, Party allegiance, uh, while for them, America's royals, uh, personified the moral decay at the heart of power, you know, this abiding theme in Gothic, really. So that latter narrative, I think, was also entangled with conservative Irish America's often negative response to the Kennedy brothers' civil rights um, agenda.
1: So You've mentioned a few times how your book, in a way, or even people like Andrew Jackson, in a way, um, have a tendency to return today in the Trump era, or the Trump era that we've just left, um, and we're now living through an era where there's another Irish Catholic American president. Um are we in a kind of a Biden Gothic? Would you ar- would you argue that or is that a fair yeah. reading?
0: There's, I mean I, I turn to that somewhat, I think briefly, yes, at the end. So yes, I think Gothic are you know, Biden is only the second Irish president of Catholic uh famine era Irish descent, you know, extraordinarily enough. Um but I think the ever-growing political chasm among American Catholics means that, that you know the very liberal Biden does not enjoy the support of Catholics on, on the American right. And where I, I sort of it's, it's more Fenton O'Toole's phrasing than mine, because Fenton O'Toole recently named Biden as possibly the most gothic figure in American politics and a revenant, The Walking Dead, effectively, and a revenant from the Kennedy era. So. Uh, yes, you know, if we remember all the Irish surnames, as as you sort of imply, you know, in the Trump administration and all the conservative Irish American voices in American media, I think it's apparent that the pact that the Kennedy administration attempted to forge between progressive politics and Irish American Catholicism has indeed come undone. And that's to say nothing of, of, of another sort of thread in, in my book, which is the perceived Trump voter base in areas that would traditionally have been considered strongly Scots-Irish. And that was before, you know, the Scots-Irish started to be mostly represented as an unethnicized white Protestant community, um, you know, in the post post-Kennedy era, at least in 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 mainstream media.
1: I mean, there there is this kind of sense of of possibility um that, that your book is and and these kind of closing chapters kind of are touching on. Um like a sense of possibility of the Kennedy era, uh, which comes across, I think, in in, uh, a quote that you use from Robert Kennedy from a speech during his very ill-fated 1968 presidential campaign um, uh, after the death of Martin Luther King. Um, Do you want to end by reading those words?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to end on that. Um... I think because those words remain uh, very uh, relevant, unfortunately. Uh, so uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated um, in April uh, of 1968, while, as you mentioned, uh, Robert Kennedy was on on the uh, the trail. And um, his response included these wonderful words, beautiful words, sad words. For there is another kind of violence, slower but just as deadly, destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence of institutions, indifference and inaction and slow decay. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin is different colors. And so, two months after he spoke those words, memorializing Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy himself was assassinated.
1: So, I, I think, as all of this has shown, I mean, this is an incredibly multifaceted book touching on. Um, so many different aspects of of Irish-American culture, but also a very broadly redefined sense of Irish-American culture. As I said at the start, it's not going to be published until March, um, but copies can now be pre-ordered from Oxford University Press's website for $24. Professor Burke, thanks so much for a really wonderful conversation.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.